welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. John chapter 3 might be uh, the most famous chapter in all of the Bible. As I thought about this, what other chapter might be a little more famous? Maybe Psalm 23. But John chapter 3 contains within it the most famous passage in the Bible, John 3.16. Even people who have almost no knowledge of the Christian faith know uh, John 3.16. And this is because there is perhaps no better uh, distillation of the gospel in one verse than this passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In fact, if you flip on the TV later on today and you watch some football games, what you won't see is the Vikings playing, but you'll probably see John 3.16 somewhere, either on the face paint of an athlete or in a sign in the crowd. This verse, this one verse, is seared into the American consciousness. It speaks of God's love in sending His Son. It calls us to believe, and it offers us a path to eternal life. Yet really, there is so much more than that going on in the context of the passage that fleshes out what Jesus is really getting at here. And as always with famous passages, they tend to take on a life of their own where we divorce them from their surrounding context, and that isn't always helpful. So we ended last week with John 2, and we note that after Jesus' first sign, turning water into wine, and then the cleansing of the temple, that there were some who saw his signs and they believed in him. And yet, chapter 2 ends on a very sour note where we read this, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew himself what was in man. So there are people who saw the signs of Jesus, who had a false belief, and Jesus knew this because he knew what was in man, so he wouldn't fully divulge himself to them. And this is exactly how Nicodemus is introduced to us in the very beginning of John 3. Now there was a man. Jesus won't entrust himself to man. Now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So here's a guy who's seen the signs. He has a modicum, a small amount of belief in Jesus, but it's not real belief. And so Jesus does not entrust himself to this man. And John 3, 1-21, through 21, has a lot going on in it. There's a lot of important parts and hinge points to this gospel here. 
Jesus makes four references in these verses to the new birth. He stresses the importance of these sayings by using the term truly, truly three times. When Jesus says something like that, truly, truly, you really need to pay attention. This passage contains the only two explicit references to the kingdom of God in the entire Gospel of John. There's one later allusion to it, but these are the only two references explicitly to the kingdom of God in this Gospel. The first use of the term eternal life comes in this passage. John 3. And then, the verb to believe is used seven times throughout these 21 verses. There's a lot going on in these 21 verses. And all of this hints to a struggle that's going on where Nicodemus is really at the center of this struggle between light and darkness. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And it's not just a physical, literal night. Nicodemus is trapped in the darkness. And he comes to the one we've already read who is the light of the world. But Nicodemus remains trapped in darkness. And I think through the dialogue and the discussion between these two men, we're going to see a lot of things. We're going to see the tension between good and evil, light and darkness, eternal life and eternal death. We're going to see the problems that we face are really similar to the problems he was facing. We're going to see the nature of the kingdom of God, the necessity of being born again, how Jesus overcomes our problem, and then again, that cosmic war between light and darkness. So I want to dive in by beginning with the problem. Jesus and Nicodemus argue over the problem, or at least discuss it. Jesus, or Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He is in the darkness. He can't see what's going on. And the conflict will emerge in the talking about the entrance to the kingdom of God. According to Jesus, there is a chasm between Nicodemus and the kingdom. I guarantee you when Nicodemus came to Jesus, that's not what he was thinking. He did not think that there was something that needed to change for him to enter into the kingdom. Listen to the words of Christ here. He says to, you, he says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The problem, the chasm, is between us and entrance into the kingdom. And this is a, both a shocking and somewhat offensive statement to a ruler of the Jews. To be a Jew was to believe that you had already had enough to enter into the kingdom of God. This is a son of Abraham. He's received the sign of the covenant. And Jesus says, that's not enough. You're not getting in just by your physical birth. And so Nicodemus hears Jesus' word that says, hey, you must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, what are you talking about? I can't go back into my mother's womb and then come back out again. And Jesus obviously was not speaking literally. He had a deeper meaning than physical birth. And so he responds, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. One must be born of water and the Spirit. Flesh cannot inherit what is spiritual. The flesh is fleshy, 
Jesus says, and the Spirit is spiritually. Something like that. Now there is some disagreement over what does Jesus mean here when he says you must be born of water and the Spirit. What is the water? We know what the Spirit is. It's the Holy Spirit. But what is water? Some take this water to mean physical birth. The amniotic fluid. When you are born, there is water that comes with you. Jesus would then be saying, if this is true, that you were born once and then you need to be born again. But the problem is, is that analogy really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it's not a very common one you find in that era at all. Some think that water here, and it makes a lot of initial sense, is a reference to Christian baptism. If you want to be saved, you need to be baptized as a Christian and then also born again uh, by the Spirit. But the problem is, is Jesus is, is speaking to Nicodemus pre-Pentecost, and there is no Christian baptism yet. It doesn't exist. This wouldn't make any sense uh, to Nicodemus if that was really uh, the case. Others would say, then, well, then clearly it's a reference to John's baptism. But if it was a reference to John's baptism, then Nicodemus wouldn't really be that puzzled at all. Rather, I think what Jesus is getting at and what John is doing here is what he does often throughout this gospel is he's pointing back to an Old Testament prophecy. We're told that this is what was going to need to happen in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. We read this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. Really, being saying you need to be born of water and the Spirit is just another way of Jesus saying you need to be born again. You need to receive the Spirit, and the Spirit brings cleansing like water. Jesus identifies the problem here as being of either of the flesh or of the Spirit. And we need to be very, very careful here when we hear the words flesh and Spirit because we could take this as saying, Our flesh is only that which is physical, and spirit is only that which is not physical or immaterial. But that's not how John is using the word flesh here, or Jesus is using the word flesh. As is often throughout scriptures, flesh is a reference to our sinful human natures, not our physical natures. Remember, Christ came in the flesh. That's a reference to being physically here. Flesh is used both ways in the Bible. The problem isn't that man is born physical. Christ was born physical. The problem is that we are born sinful. That we are sinners by nature and by choice. And so, to be spiritual is to be of the Holy Spirit. Let me summarize this. What's the problem? What's the problem that Nicodemus has? What's the problem that you and I have? We're sinners. The problem's moral. This is the problem that runs all throughout Scripture. What has gone wrong with man? Sin. You love to sin. You love to disobey God. And then you love to make an excuse for it. Our chasm is moral. Consider just for a moment the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve lived in a physical world, in God's presence. They were in his kingdom. It was perfect. There was no problems at all. But then they chose to sin. 
What did God do then? Well, he cursed them, he punished them, and he kicked them out of his presence, and he sent an angel to guard the entrance into his kingdom, into his presence. He said, no one can get into this. An angel stands guard with a flaming sword. As the history of Israel moves forward, then the people of Israel build a tabernacle at the command of God. And God would live with them in the wilderness, in the land. And he promised them a kingdom where he would dwell with them. But no one was allowed into his presence, presence the most holy place. Except once a year, after extensive cleansing. And then there was this big veil between the most holy place and the rest of the tabernacle. And what was on the veil? An angel guarding the entrance to God's presence. Israel, despite having been born physically into the covenant, was just like Adam and Eve. They sinned, and God kicked them out of his kingdom. The great chasm is our sin. This means, in no uncertain terms, physical birth cannot get you into the kingdom. It can't solve that problem. A new birth is necessary. So to rely on your physical birth for entrance into the kingdom is utter foolishness. This is where our uh, dear Presbyterian brothers are, are mistaken. The whole thrust of both the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Testament and the New Covenant is that the kingdom of God comes through covenant relationship. The two are linked together. You don't get into the kingdom without the covenant, and you don't get in the covenant without getting into the kingdom. And the thrust of Israel's history and the prophet's testimony and Christ's ministry is this. Physical birth can't guarantee you entrance into the kingdom. Something more is needed. And so Jesus expanded, or Jesus here is expanding upon what John introduced in chapter 1. John says this about Christ. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He, that is Jesus, gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's not our flesh. It's not our blood that gets us in. It's not the will of man. It's the will of God. Being born into Abraham's line isn't enough. Being born into a Christian home is not enough to enter into the kingdom or into the covenant. Your physical birth means nothing in that regard. Now I hasten to say on the heels of that that there are many advantages to being born Jewish. There are many advantages to being born into a Christian home. It's not utterly worthless. It just doesn't guarantee you entrance into the kingdom. To be born into a Christian home is to receive the grace and mercy to be taught the scriptures from a young age, to see the promises, to hear the good news, to be brought to church regularly. It is to be born into a union between a man and a woman who love God and who will then teach you about God. And there is much gain in that. But the main problem remains the main problem. You must be born again. Your physical birth does nothing. So what is the kingdom? 
You must be born again to get into the kingdom. Well, what does that even mean? Well, just like everything in the Gospels, there's significant debate about what is the nature of the kingdom of God. We should note that in Jesus' day, they expected the kingdom to be a national kingdom. They were awaiting a Messiah who would kick Rome out of the promised land and establish the kingdom of God in Israel. And so this further informs Nicodemus's confusion. Of course I'm in the Jewish kingdom. Why wouldn't I be, Jesus? That doesn't make any sense. And the kingdom became for them largely a, a future reality, sometimes and often tied with the resurrection of the dead. The kingdom was not yet here. In correcting that idea of a purely physical national kingdom, many Christians today have completely and wrongly detached the kingdom from this world. They will say, well, all this kingdom is all about what's in heaven. It's nothing about this world. You really can't read your Old Testament or your New Testament very well and come to that conclusion. In the most basic sense, this entire cosmos is God's kingdom. He rules over it all. And sometimes the, that uh, concept is used of God's kingdom that way, especially in the Old Testament. But the term and concept is used in another, I think, more specific way to speak of God's redemptive rule. Like All of this world is God's, but there are specific ways in which he is exerting his redemptive rule over everything. And so the kingdom of God is not so much territorial like we draw lines on a map. It's not so much locational, but it's moral. It's moral. All of the world belongs to God, but some of it is still in rebellion to him. It's still God's territory, but the repentance and the renewal has not yet taken place. The kingdom is where God's authority is being reestablished and where it's renewing and transforming. This is not, and I want to stress this, this is not a purely future reality. Like Levi, why are you hammering this so hard? There's a lot of just infighting in Christian circles right now over the idea of the kingdom. Where is it? When is it? A lot of it revolves around debates over so-called Christian nationalism and post-millennialism. If you're a Christian nationalist or a post-millennialist, you think the kingdom is all here and now. That's not an accurate representation of their view, but that's what their opponents say. And if, you don't, if you're not one of those, then you think it's all in the future. Well, let me give you somebody here. His name is D.A. Carson. He's written, a, he's written the commentary on the Gospel of John until Ardell finishes his. He's written the commentary on this. He is not a Christian nationalist. He's not a post-millennialist. This is what he says about the kingdom. This is what he says about the kingdom. One of the most startling features of the kingdom announced in the synoptic gospels, as Matthew, Mark, and John, or not Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that it is not exclusively future. The kingdom, God's saving and transforming reign, has in certain respects already been inaugurated in the person, works, and message of Jesus. John stresses this inaugurated or realized component of the long-awaited salvation even more than the other three Gospels. It is far more characteristic of John to stress entry into life and participation in the eternal life now. Let me rephrase that for you. Carson's telling you that John over and against the other three Gospels, stresses that right now you can get into the kingdom. And you'll still be on earth somehow. Because it's not primarily territorial. Right now, you can enter into the kingdom of God. 
It's present. It's a reality for you and me today, here. It is not all future. So the kingdom is here, in a sense, and it is now, and it covers every aspect of life in every square inch of the universe. To say, as I've said to you guys often, this is Christ's world. It all belongs to him. Just some of it is still fighting back against him. Don't be that part. Entrance into the redeeming and transforming kingdom of God comes through new birth. How does the new birth come? Jesus tells us in 7 through 9. He looks at Nicodemus and he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You must be born again. What does it mean to be born again? Well, that Greek word has an intended double meaning. To be born again can be translated as either born again or born from above. Jesus is intentionally wanting you to think about both of those things. To be born again is to be born a second time from above. And so Jesus explains this new birth comes not by the will of man, not by your choice, but through the Spirit. And the Spirit is like the wind, which is the same word as the Spirit. And we cannot see the wind, but wherever it blows, we hear it and we see its impact. I heard my, one of my kids say, there's a piece of garbage blowing down the road, Mom, this morning, because it was windy. We don't see the wind. We don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but we see its impact. In a warm summer day, you will look out at the lake and you will see the waves because the wind is blowing. In the same way, the Spirit blows wherever He wants and we do not see it. But we do see the change. We see the impact. We do not know where it begins or where it ends, but we see what He has done. To be born again is to be regenerated. It is to be like a tree that was at one moment motionless and the next moment a mighty wind blows across it and everything changes. It starts moving. New life has come. To be born again is to be changed by the power of God. To be born again is to be changed by the very power that created the universe. To be born again is to be changed by the very power that rose Christ from the dead. To be born again is to be a new person. Now, of course, as you read throughout your Bible, we still have our old person with us, our sin tendencies and our struggles. But we cannot stress this enough. The power at work in the people of God is stronger than the sin at work in your old self. The power at work in the people of God, is mightier than your sin. So Jesus has now turned all of Nicodemus' thinking on its head. You don't get in by the will of man. You don't get in by works. You don't get in by your birth. You need to be born again. You can't do that. The Spirit has to blow upon you. And so in verse 9, Nicodemus asks the obvious question, How can these things be? How can this be? How is this possible? None of this makes any sense to me. And I think Jesus' response is uh, priceless. He says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? He's not just a teacher of Israel. He's the teacher. 
He's one of the most renowned teachers in Israel. He says, how can these things be? And Jesus, in essence, says, how can you have missed these things? Nicodemus, you of all people, should have seen these things. You're the teacher of Israel. You know your Bible. You should have seen it. How how should he have responded, or how should he have seen it? But what does it mean when we say things like, well, the Spirit must, be, must uh, blow upon you? Does that mean there's nothing that you must do to be saved? Does that mean I'm just sitting on my couch and one day, oh, I'm saved, but nothing happens, so I don't do anything? No. Jesus continues. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now we start getting that reoccurring theme of belief. Jesus says, what must you do? You must look upon the Son of Man and believe. You must believe in him. You must believe in his work. And Jesus uses a random passage from Israel's desert wanderings where God sent poisonous snakes upon the people of Israel as they were wandering around. They were complaining. So God sends them snakes and they get bitten and they want deliverance. And so God tells Moses, why don't you make this bronze serpent, put it on a pole, put it in the camp, stick it up in the ground, and if the people look up at that snake and believe, they will be saved. And Jesus says, that's actually about me. I'm the bronze serpent. If you want to be saved, just like the people who are bitten by a snake, you must look upon Jesus as he is put in the ground on a stake. You are to look up at him and believe. It's all about him. A stake, a pole, a cross. You are to look at him as he is upon that and believe. Then you have eternal life. Let me rephrase all of this. To enter the kingdom, you must be born again. Being born again enables faith in Jesus Christ. Christ, through his work, then gives eternal life to whoever believes. And by that eternal life, you enter the kingdom of God. Today, your eternal life starts the moment you believe. And so we are commanded to look upon Christ on the cross and believe. And then we live And this is the context of the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world. The world is not every person without exception, but every person without distinction. What do I mean by that? Nicodemus thought the kingdom was primarily Jewish. When Jesus says God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the world there means not just the Jews. This is an offer made to every tribe, nation, and tongue. That he gave his only son. The love of God is measured in the giving of his son who is lifted up upon a cross to die on the behalf of wicked sinners. That whoever believes in him, this belief comes through the Spirit, but that belief is necessary for salvation. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. The curse of death is overthrown because sin has been dealt with and we are granted entrance into his kingdom. That's John 3.16. You can't understand it without the first 15 verses. 
God saves. He saves by dealing with our sin, by sending His Son to die, and sending His Spirit that we might have new life. And you can have it today. It's not just out in the future. You can have it today. And the section ends with this painting of all of this in the frame of a cosmic war between good and evil. Listen again to verses 17 through 21. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Christ did not come to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. He didn't need to come and bring judgment. The world was already under the curse of God. Outside of Christ, everyone stands rightly condemned. And here, unbelief is linked with darkness. Belief with the light. Evil is linked with wickedness. Light with salvation and righteousness. To refuse to believe is to be trapped in darkness and evil. It is to remain in your condemnation. Sometimes we ask the question, why do people not believe in Jesus? John three seventeen through 21 tells you why. Because they hate the light. Why is your unbelieving family member, coworker, neighbor, why does he or she not believe in Jesus? Because they hate the light and they love the darkness. They love their sin. This is natural in our fallen state. We don't want our sins exposed. We don't want them brought to the light. We like the fake safety we feel in the darkness. We think nobody knows our sins. So we don't want them to come to the light. But by faith, we come to the light and our sins are forgiven. This is the cosmic war between good and evil and it all hinges upon this. Belief in Jesus Christ. Not works. Not that you've done a really great job with your life, but whether or not you have bent the knee to the person of Jesus Christ. And so I have but one application for you today. One very plain application from this passage. Repent and believe in Jesus. That's it. Repent and believe in Christ. God must save you. And God saves through Christ by his Spirit. Nicodemus came to Jesus because he had seen signs. And he thought he had faith. And Jesus said, that's not it. Lots of people want to come to Jesus because they think about all the great things that he can do for them. They want signs. They want wonders. But they don't want Jesus. Nicodemus was perhaps the first one to do that. It's not enough. 
We are called to look upon Christ on the cross who bore our sins and believe that he alone is our hope. He alone is our salvation. He alone has conquered sin, death, and Satan. He alone is the light of the world. This Christ is our hope in life and death. And so we are called to praise him this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we pause this morning to thank you that in John 3 we see how you have made a way for eternal life. That in your great love you have sent your Son to die on behalf of sinners like us. And what you have commanded of us is that we would look upon him on the cross and look up in faith and believe. Lord, I ask that if there is anyone in this room who has not yet done that, that your spirit would fall upon him or her and that they might pass from death to life this morning. And that they might see Jesus in all of his goodness and glory. We ask, Lord, that you come quickly. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Christ Bible Church. Remember, this world is dripping with meaning because Christ created it, he sustains it, and he is reconciling it all to himself. Now go and live out that glorious truth.